John, chapter 14, verses 15 through 31. Verse 15. If ye love me, keep my commandments. Burkett notes, in these words, our Savior implicitly reproves his disciples for their fond way of expressing their love to him by doting upon his bodily presence and sorrowing immoderately for his absence. And he expressly warns them to evidence their love to him by their obedience to his commands. If ye love me, keep my commandments. Where observe, Christ requires an obedient love and a loving obedience. Love without obedience is but dissimulation. Obedience without love is but drudgery and slavery. Such a love as produces obedience must be a dutiful love, a love of reverence and honor to him as a commander, and an operative and working love, a labor of love, as the apostle calls it. Not waiters, but workers are the best servants in Christ's esteem. And such an obedience as is the product of love will be a willing, easy, and cheerful obedience, a pleasing and an acceptable obedience, a constant and abiding obedience. All other motives without love are servile and base, and beget in us the drudgery of a slave, but not the duty of a son. He that fears God only is afraid of smarting, but he that loves God is afraid of offending. Learn hence that the best and surest evidence we can have of our love to the Lord Jesus Christ is a humble, cheerful, universal, and persevering obedience to his commands. Keep my commandments. That is, endeavor it without reserve. For though we cannot keep the commandments to a just satisfaction, yet we may perform them to a gracious acceptation. And the word my, my commandments, is a sweetening and alleviating word. Moses' law, an unsupportable load, but Christ's law, an easy burden. The law from Sinai, dreadful. The law from Sion, gracious. It pardons weakness and accepts sincerity. Verses 16 and 17. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelt with you, and shall be in you. Burkett notes, Christ comforteth his disciples here with a promise of the mission of the Holy Spirit, to supply the want of his bodily presence. Where observe one, the procurer of this blessing, and that is Christ, by his prevailing prayer and powerful intercession. I will pray. It runs in the future tense, and so it is a promise of Christ's continual intercession. As long as Christ is in heaven, a Christian shall not want a supply of comfort and consolation here on earth. Observe, too, the author and donor of the blessing, and that is God himself. I will pray the Father, and he shall give. The Father, that is, my Father, your Father, and he that is the Father of comfort and consolation. I will pray, and he will give. It is an expression of great assurance. Observe three, the blessing itself, the Holy Ghost, called here another comforter, where note one, the divinity of the Holy Ghost. He that will supply the comforts of Christ's presence must be as Christ is, the God of all comfort. Note two, the person of the Holy Ghost. He is a divine person, not a divine quality or operation. Then we might call him a comfort but not a comforter. 
Note 3. The Office and Employment of the Holy Ghost. He is a comforter. That is, an advocate and intercessor to sue for us, an encourager and one that administers consolation to us. And as he is a Holy Spirit, so are his comforts holy comforts. Observe for the stability of this blessing, that he may abide with you forever. The best of our outward comforts are sudden flashes, not lasting flames. But the consolations of the Holy Spirit are strong consolations. They are abounding consolations and everlasting consolations. Especially the Holy Spirit will be the comforter of good men in the day of affliction, in the day of temptation, and at the hour of death, when all other comforts flag and fail. Observe, lastly, the additional title given to the Holy Ghost. He is called the Spirit of Truth, partly in opposition to Satan, who is called a lying spirit, partly because he teacheth and revealeth the truth, leadeth his people into all truth, and sealeth and confirmeth truth to the souls of believers. He is the Spirit of Truth, both in his essence and in his operations. Learn hence that as the Holy Spirit is true in his essence and nature, so is he true in his office as a comforter to good men, all his consolations being real and solid and free from imposture and delusion. Verse 18. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Burkett notes, Here observe one, the condition which the disciples were in upon account of Christ's removal from them, and that was sad and comfortless, fatherless or orphans, as the word signifies. Learn hence that Christ's departure or the loss of his gracious presence is very sad and comfortless to a pious soul. Well might the disciples here lament and mourn upon the occasion of Christ's leaving of them, seeing thereby they should be deprived of his doctrine and instructions, and of his advice and counsel, and of the benefit of his holy and instructive example. Observe, too, the care of Christ for his disciples, in reference to this their sad and disconsolate condition. He would not leave them comfortless. Where note, he doth not say, I will not suffer you to be comfortless, but I will not leave you so. That is, he will not desert or disown them in their comfortless condition. He will not leave them, either in point of affection or in point of activity. He will not cease to love them, nor cease to bestir himself for them. Learn hence that Christ will not leave his friends in a sad and comfortless state and condition, though for a time they may be brought into it. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come unto you. Christ's coming here unto them is to be understood of his coming to them by his Holy Spirit, in the gifts of it, in the graces of it, and in the comforts of it. Thus he did not long leave them comfortless, but at the Feast of Pentecost came to them again. Verses 19 and 20 Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more. But ye see me, because I live, ye shall live also. And that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Burkett notes, Here our Savior foretells approaching death, that within a little time the men of the world should see him no more. For though he rose again, the world saw him no more after his death. For we read of no appearance of him after his resurrection to any but to his disciples only. Indeed, the hour is coming when the world shall see him again, namely at the day of judgment, when every eye shall behold him with terror and amazement. Observe farther, 
the consolation given to his disciples, Ye shall see me. Because I live, ye shall live also. Because I am raised from the grave, I will quicken your dead bodies in the grave, and ye shall live also. And as I live by my ascension into heaven, so shall you, my disciples, live a life of grace here, and a life of glory with myself hereafter. Learn hence that a believer's spiritual life is derived from Christ, who, by his Spirit, communicates a quickening virtue to all his members. Because he lives, ye shall live also. See how Christ binds up their life together with his own, as if he'd said, whilst there is vital sap in the root, you that are the branches in me shall not wither and die. Observe, lastly, a farther privilege ensured to believers after Christ's ascension and the Spirit's mission. They should more perfectly understand the essential union betwixt Christ and his Father, and the mystical union betwixt Christ and his members. At that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, etc. The knowledge which the saints now have of the mysterious and mystical union is but dark and imperfect. But in heaven they shall understand these things clearly. Then and there, the essential union of Christ and his Father, and the mystical union between Christ and his believers, will be more clearly understood than we are capable to understand them in this our imperfect state. Verse 21. He that hath my commandments, and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and will manifest myself to him. Bouquet notes, Our blessed Savior in these words repeats what he had before enjoined at verse 15, namely, to evidence the sincerity of our love to him by the universality of our obedience to his commands. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. Or note 1. The necessity of knowledge in order to practice. 2. The necessity of practice in order unto happiness. We must first have Christ's commandments before we can keep them. We must have them in our understandings and judgments, in our wills and affections. Not have them only in our eyes to read, in our ears to hear, or in our mouths to talk of them, but to hide them in our hearts, that we may not sin against Christ in the willful violation of them. Farther, we must keep as well as have these commandments. This denotes a universal, diligent, and persevering obedience to them. Hence learn that although many loose professors pretend to love Christ because they hear, read, know, and can talk of his commandments, yet in Christ's account none do truly love him but those who make conscience of their obedience to him. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. Observe next the gracious promise of Christ to such as express their love unto him. 1. He shall be loved of my Father and of myself. And shall he not be loved of the Holy Ghost too? Yes, no doubt. But why is he not named then? Because the Son dwelleth in us by the Spirit, and sheds the love abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. 2. I will manifest myself unto him. That is, such obedient Christians shall not only enjoy the fruit and benefit of my love, but shall enjoy the sense of my love, and experience the sensible manifestations and inward diffusions of my love in their own souls. Learn hence that the only way to have Christ love us, and to let out his love upon us, and to know that he loves us, is to look diligently to our obediential walking with him and before him. We may as rationally think to nourish our bodies with poison 
as to enjoy the manifestation of Christ's love in a way of sin. Verse 22. Judith saith unto him, Not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us, and not unto the world? Burkett notes, Some understand these words of a temporal manifestation, and think that Judas, the brother of James, who spake them, still expected that Christ should be a temporal prince, and have such a kingdom as should be conspicuous to all the world, and therefore puts the question, how could he possibly show himself to his disciples and the world not see him? Others understand it of a spiritual manifestation, as if he had said, Lord, who or what are thy disciples, that we should enjoy more special manifestations of thy love to us than to the rest of the world? Why should we be dignified by such distinguishing favors above others? Learn hence, one, that there is a real difference put by Christ betwixt his own children and the world in the matter of special manifestations. Two, that there being no cause from the creature why Christ should make this difference, his discriminating grace is a matter of just and great admiration. Well might the apostle, out of a deep admiration, say, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself to us and not unto the world? Verses 23 and 24. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not, keepeth not my sayings, and the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. Burkett notes, Observe here how our Savior still goes on to direct and encourage his disciples to evidence the sincerity of their love to his person by the universality of their obedience to his commands, and tells them how great their advantage would be by so doing. For first, the Father would love them, that is, manifest his favor to them in further dispensations of grace and comfort. Learn thence that all the manifestations of divine love to the souls of believers depend upon their close walking with God in the path of holiness and strict obedience. Secondly, we will make our abode with him. He shall have father and son's company, an allusion to a parent that has many children. He will be sure to live with them that are most dutiful to him and most observant of him. The expression of making their abode with us denotes that sweet and intimate fellowship which shall be between God and us, and the perpetuity and constancy of it at all times. Till we are taken up by him into heaven, he will make this abode with us by the indwelling presence of his Holy Spirit, the graces and comforts whereof shall abide with us forever. Verses 25 and 26. These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you, but the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. Burkett notes, Here we have a repeated promise of the mission of the Holy Ghost, called the Comforter, and his special office declared, namely, to teach and to bring to remembrance what Christ had taught. He shall teach you all things. As the Spirit of God is a great Comforter, so he is the special teacher of his children. He teacheth condescendingly, stooping to the meanest capacities. He teaches efficaciously, inclining the heart to receive instruction, as well as opening the ear to hear it. He teaches plainly and clearly, unerringly and infallibly. He is the truth itself, and therefore his teachings are most true. Verses 27 and 28. 
and as the Holy Spirit is the saint's teacher, so is he also their remembrancer. He shall bring all things to your remembrance. That is, all truths needful to be known and necessary to salvation. Here note that the Holy Spirit teaches nothing but what Christ himself taught. The Spirit teaches in the Word and by the Word, but never teaches anything contrary to the Word. He shall teach and bring to remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Verse 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Burkett notes, As if our Lord had said, Whatever outward trouble the world gives you, be not afraid of it before it comes, nor troubled at it when it is come. For I will give you inward peace in the midst of all your outward troubles. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Or note that Christ's peace is vastly different from that peace which is given or enjoyed by the world. The world may wish peace, yet never obtain it, or they may wish it, yet not be able to give it. But Christ's peace is real and effectual, solid and substantial. The world's peace is only a freedom from outward trouble, but Christ's peace is a deliverance from inward guilt. And though it doth not give us an exemption from outward troubles, yet it gives us a sanctified use and improvement of them, and assures us of a joyful issue and deliverance out of them. Verse 28. Ye have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If you loved me, you would rejoice, because I said, I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. Burkett notes that the disciples of Christ might neither be overset with fears nor overwhelmed with grief. He tells them that they ought to entertain the news of his departure rather with joy and exultation than with sorrow and dejection. If you love me, you would rejoice, because I go to the Father. True love to Christ will make us rejoice in his advancement and exaltation, although it be our own disadvantage. These words, my Father is greater than I, must be understood with reference to his human nature as mediator, for so he was the Father's servant, and the Father as God was greater than he as man. Again, the Father may be said to be greater than Christ in regard of his paternity, as being the fountain of the deity. The Father is of himself, but the Son is begotten of the Father. But being of the same substance with the Father, he is consequently God, as the Father is God. For the inequality arises not from the essence, but from the order and manner of subsistence. Thus the Father is greater than he, greater than he as to his original, the Son being begotten by him, and greater is he that gives than he that receives. But as to his essence, they are both one God and so equal. Three ways the Father was greater than Christ. One, with respect to his human nature. Who can doubt but a dependent is inferior to that almighty being that made him? Two, with respect to the eternal generation of his divine person, as he was begotten of the Father, who was therefore called the fountain of the deity. Three, with respect to his office as mediator, for thus he was his Father's servant. Oh, wonderful condescension, that the eternal word, who, as such, was equal with the Father, should, in compassion to us, accept a station and sustain a character in which the Father was greater than he. Now, though under each of these considerations God the Father is greater than the Son, yet none of them are inconsistent with the Son's being God by nature. Verses 29 through 31. And now I have told you before it come to pass, 
that when it is come to pass, you might believe. Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go hence. Burkett notes, The time of our Savior's death now nearer and nearer approaching. He prepares the expectation of his disciples for it. Because evils that surprise us suddenly to sink our spirit sadly. Whereas what we fear, for that we prepare. Accordingly, our Lord arms his disciples against all disquietude and overwhelming sorrow for his departure from them. I have told you before that when it comes to pass, you might believe. That is, be assured that I am not mere man, but truly and really God, and depend upon me for life and salvation. Observe, too, how our Savior points out the cause of his suffering, namely, Satan and his instruments. The prince of this world cometh, that is, by Judas, the soldiers, and the high priests. But he hath nothing in me. That is, he will find no sin or corruption in me to side with his temptation, or no guilt upon me to give him any advantage against me, for I shall die as a perfectly innocent person. Christ, in suffering for our sins, did not only conflict with the wrath of God, but with the rage of men and devils. Yet all the power and policy, all the malice and cruelty of Satan, cannot prevail against Christ any further than he voluntarily yields and submits himself unto it. The prince of this world cometh, but hath nothing in me. Observe 3. That it was Christ's love and obedience to his Father that carried him forth so cheerfully to the work of suffering, supported him under it, and carried him through it that the world may know that I love the Father, and, as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. True love to God will draw all men to obedience in the hardest service and sufferings. The grand motive of Christ's suffering was to love his Father, obedience to his commands, and regard to his glory. Lord, let thy love and obedience to thy Father and all thy sufferings be the subject of our admiration and the matter of our imitation also. As the Father gives us commandment, so let us always do.